Hi, this is John Barnes, and you're listening to Cop On. I'm absolutely thrilled, delighted, wonderful, wonderfully, wonderfully uh, happy that Neil Atkinson is joining us on Cop On Podcast for a special interview. I had the honour of interviewing your colleague, John, Gibbs, John Gibbons, and uh, now we have Neil. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm, my first question for you, just going to jump straight in there with a lockdown question. How has it been for you? And what is the best thing that you've done with your time since this whole horrible situation began? Oh, I mean, that's really strange. We've just kept working, to be honest. So we've kept doing shows, kept pulling things together. Uh, so it's not really been, you know, there's been bits and pieces where it's, 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 there's some days where it's quieter than it normally would be and other times where it isn't and where it's busier. So I really, it's not been one of sort of, you know, I haven't been spending the time learning to play the guitar or anything like that. Instead, we've just been sort of trying to work and, and turn things around. And in terms of, you know, the best thing uh, since we since we started all this is that I went for a very lovely bike ride. Uh, which I would recommend, uh, just be fortunate where I live, very close to the coast. Uh, and that was very, very nice indeed. And I've also watched Bayer Leverkusen play football. I'd recommend that as well. Yeah, it's been marvellous to have the Bundesliga coming back and we can watch games maybe a lot of us wouldn't normally watch because uh, we'd be too busy watching the Reds. Yes, exactly. Has anybody stood out apart from Kai Havertz? And... Well, he's, he's been great. Uh, Kerem uh, Demibray, I can never pronounce his name correctly, uh, Demibray. I think he's been really, really good whenever I've seen Leverkusen. And all the players who play for Bayern Munich and Dortmund are good players as well. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, marvellous stuff. Um, yeah, but talk about you. I mean, I was there, uh, you know, we've just passed the anniversary of, of number six. And uh, I was there in the crowd that day in Madrid, Plas Felipe Dos, which I think means two, uh, at lunchtime before the final. And you were up there on the stage in front of thousands of Reds. And you were talking not only about Liverpool, but about life and about politics and about what the club means to you in its broader context for lots of people as well. And it must have been such a thrill. And what are you going to tell your grandkids about that day? Well, I mean, the it's worth thrill is one way to look at it. Um, roller coaster dicing with death experiences and other. <laughs> there's a there's there's a strange thing which that everybody presumes that sort of stuff is, you know, that it's. Uh, I find it really rather straightforward. I was the first thing I would point out is I was unbelievable. I was some sort of combination of unbelievably still drunk from the night before, hungover and starving because part of the reason why I'd ended up getting suddenly drunk the night before was I hadn't had anything to eat. And then as we sort of woke up, we just went straight there. So it was all very much a matter of sort of boarding this thing and seeing where we ended up uh, because we didn't have, you know, none of it was written. Um, we, we had a, set, a vague framework of what we were going to do. We'd done something similar at our end of season thing a couple of weeks back. Um, with that was that was hooked more into a like a film with clips of things that people had done, uh, and we'd done something the year before in Chevchenko Park, but we didn't you know we didn't have a script, um, and I just had some notes on my phone. So whenever you saw me walk to the back of the stage and fumble around, I was uh, reading my phone to work out what cue, what direction we were going to try and go in next. But Brilliant. I mean, it was a fantastic day, and you know there wasn't a bit of it that that experience rattling through and watching that crowd grow in front of us and the way in which they responded up until the very end when when you know we finished with believe by share uh going all the way in was was, was fabulous and 
And, you know, I hope that people got something from it. I'm sure it, a lot of people couldn't be bothered with it, and that's also perfectly fine. Uh, it is important to say that. Uh, and then, obviously, that segueing into the game itself, you know, and the fact that Liverpool win uh, the European Cup in those circumstances, you know, is, is fabulous. It's fabulous to, you know, be a small, very small part of people's day uh, as a collective, as part of all of that. And it was kind of people to, to pay attention and to get stuck in and to enjoy it. And I think, as I say, I hope that people did. It's fine if they didn't, but I hope that people did. It was a, it was a heck of a ride. And sort of, the, you know, this season has been almost, a, a, you know, a continuation of this, this amazing three seasons, really, you know, to get to, to, to lose. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Shevchenko Park and then to win the final and then this season being interrupted the way it has. I mean, wow. We've certainly had a lot of time to to reminisce and think about this journey, but it's been absolutely phenomenal, hasn't it? Uh, brilliant. Um, just more, more questions about, about yourself. We, we had a question from, from our friend Fergus. Fergus McFadden, who lives in Portugal. Um, he's been all around the world. He's a geologist, very interesting man. Uh, but uh, he listens to the Anfield rapper, as I do uh, often, and uh, we, we, we love it. And uh, he was there in the place with me. Uh, you know, that day a year ago. And he asks, were you any good at footy when you were young? No, I mean, I'm, I'm not a bad player, not a good player. Um, <clears throat> just, you know, by the, time, by the time I settle, I'm a relatively tidy-ish um, centre midfielder who, as he grows older and fatter, uh, goes deeper and deeper. A couple of seasons ago, I played at Anfield in a in like a postseason thing that we got invited to, and it was just a, a nice day to be honest. And I uh, I got twenty minutes playing at Anfield, and I didn't give it away once. Uh, twenty minutes of looking after the ball, winning it back, and and just uh, just passing it along. So that was nice. It was nice to be able to do that. But uh, was I a good player? No. Was I a bad player? No. I was, you know, in any sort of given group. Uh, random uh, group of people from my age range who've got at least a mild interest in football and any game of five aside I tend to be somewhere between the uh, fifth and eighth best player Uh, not the worst not the one you want to see in goal all game but not the one who's going to be up front scoring uh, scoring seven or eight goals for your team to fire you to victory (laughs) great that's that's good that's way better than me I'm absolutely abominable I was uh, I was in my school teams on enthusiasm nothing to do with talent they (laughs) stuck me at left back because we didn't have a left footed player in my school and uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it but uh, it was pure pure joy at being out there um uh, yeah, because, uh, you know, the Anfield rap's wonderful, of course. And, you know, like lots of people I've been listening to talking about Liverpool for, you know, for, for, for a number of years now. Um, Terrifying length of time. It's, no, it's absolutely, no, it's lovely. It's a lovely narrative to, you know, we feel part of it as the listeners. You know, we can see the show develop and the things, you know, things, the new ideas coming out and stuff. It's really nice to, as a, as a consumer, if you consider us uh, that way but uh, no it's absolutely lovely but uh, you know I know that you're very much into you know books and you love music and stuff uh, what music and books are you into at the moment uh, in terms of um, that's an interesting question uh, in terms of uh, new stuff that's come out recently I really like the Dua Lipper album uh, the Fiona Al- Apple album um, is tremendous uh, I'm not someone who's ever really been a fan of Fiona or Apple whenever I've heard it I've always been a little bit nonplussed uh, but it's called Fetch the Bolt Cutters, and it is just a, a terrific record. Uh, to be quite honest with you, I can't, I can't, um, I can't overstate it enough uh, as to how how good I've found it uh, in amongst the sort of the usual bits and pieces that I listen to, pick up and move along with the idea of, as I say, sort of 
you know, I don't know how many Apple uh, albums Fiona Apple has made, not how many apples has Fiona album <laughs> made, uh, but however many it is, um, you know, as I say, to suddenly at this point think that, you know, that she's made a truly great albums, fascinating as far as I'm concerned, and, and, and that's, that's in there. And in terms of books, um, I've recently just finished uh, Child 44, which I enjoyed immensely, which had been turned into a film, which has got Tom Hardy in. Uh, I'm reading at the minute a very good biography of Lincoln by Don, Doris Kearns Goodwin, which is a much, it's, it's been much spoken of. It's sold over a million copies, I think. Um, it's an interesting thing to read, current climate, for a number of different reasons, but one of the things that sort of comes over is the the extent to which the, the, the geographical nature of the United States sort of has a much greater impact on the way in which it behaves and people within it behave than we sort of give, give credit for. We, we We talk about a lot of things when we talk about developments and the way societies interact with one another but we often miss geography i think um that geography is is is, is a massive influence on on that people basically respond to geographical structures in strange ways so one of the strange things about it is we discover lincoln worked in the circuit court and i've heard about the circuit court within american society like chicago has circuit courts and I've never really, so if you watch The Good Wife within there, they'll talk about circuit court, that, that this thing will happen. And the reason why circuit court is a thing is that um, ultimately when, if you imagine a time in the 19th century when you couldn't easily get about or get two places, what would happen was that you would wait for your justice, justice to be dispensed and the court would come on a circuit around uh, the sort of outside of the city or the, the main part of Illinois, Chicago, whichever American city it is, because these places are huge. So the court comes to you, it's, it's lawyers come, uh, the judge comes, everything comes, and then they stay for about a week, do all the justice that needs to be done, and then they move on. Mm. Um, and when you stop to think about that, that is something which, you know, if you live in a, in a, in a population with far greater population density, then you don't have that sort of thing. But what all of that does is it leads to the needing to be greater, more areas and communities want to have democratic representation, which is why there's so many layers of different democratic representation within America, which then leads to different elements of potential corruption at times or other things as well. And how all these things interact is massive, but it's actually because of geography. It's not simply because it's not the idea that people in America are born differently. They're still, everyone's still humans, but how you, you then grow up into a structure which has been, enforced well which has been created because there's geographical things to try and solve and when you read a book like for instance the book i'm reading about lincoln uh it sort of it, it doesn't explain that as such you just sort of fill in the gaps and you're like oh that's why that's like that and that's why that's like that and i think it's a really interesting thing and i think it's something that as i say when we just when we try to discuss the character of the way in which people are in inverted commas we forget firstly that people are born into structures but also those structures are influenced by geographical phenomena and I think it's just a really interesting thing that we that we overlook uh, when we talk about lots of other things that we say impact people. We miss geography. That's a very interesting answer. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's nice to connect the dots with with different things and to get different, deeper understanding of different subjects. Even if even if we think we we know the states, of course you know there's a it's of course not, yeah there's an infinite ladder to climb in terms of knowledge, isn't there? And you just have to take it rung by rung. Uh, yep. But uh, no, no, it's a very interesting answer. Absolutely. I remember one thing you mentioned on the Anfield rap. Uh, I don't know when it was, maybe a year ago, maybe more, um, about, um, about a, a football writer that really, uh, got, I went out and I got two of his books, absolutely loved them, was Michael Kelvin. You also did an interview yep. with him. Uh, State of Play, uh, I think that was the one that you recommended. And, and The Nowhere Men are the ones that I've read. Absolutely brilliant. So it's thank tremendous. you. Yeah, no really tremendous is a great word for it. Um, so what, in your opinion, 
you know, because obviously you as well with the Anfield Rep, you promote uh, writing and Liverpool writing and football writing. So what what are the elements that that make for you know good writing? I mean, it's a bit of a general question, but what what in your opinion is oh. is a good thing for a, a football writer? I think I I think that you know, firstly to both be aware of what the rules are and then forget them quite quickly. So I think you know, you, there's not for me conventional sort of football writings at a little bit of a crisis for a variety of different reasons. So the key question and the key question with football writing, football, conventional day-to-day newspaper-based football writing has got this massive problem, which is this. How do you write about a game everybody who cares has seen? So if Liverpool play at half 12 on a Saturday and you've got, you know, you're meant to write a match report that's going to go into Monday's paper, it's not going to... Uh, hit the internet till 10.30. But you've also got another problem, which is that practically everyone who cares about Liverpool can have watched the match, either legally or illegally. Or they'll have seen the highlights because match of the day is on the Saturday night. So your audience is already pretty well informed when it comes to a match report, uh, as as used to be. So one of the reasons why, for instance, there's the growth of stuff like minute-by-minute reporting is actually that that replaces a match report for people. So even if you think about the idea of a match report... Well, what if I could read the minute by minute, even if I couldn't watch the match, well, why would I read the match report and care about it? And that's something which I think is has really sort of hit hits hard at the the core of conventional newspaper writing. I love a good match report, but by a good one, I mean a, almost like a classical look at one, you know, one that goes back, if you imagine, you know, I like I like to be told what the weather was like. Well, what's the point if you know, what's the point of telling you what the weather was like if we can film the weather, if we can see the weather? Uh, as an example, but it's it's different times now, and I think that that's what something that football writing sort of struggle to deal with. So I think I think sort of being aware of where conventions are, and then deciding which ones you want to stick with and which ones don't help massively. I think understanding what the thing you're writing is and where it's meant to be. So the match reviews that I write for the Anfield Wrap, I could only and would only write in the immediate aftermath of the game. I've got no interest whatsoever. I, tr- I never uh, try to preempt any aspect of them to be quite honest with you there'll be a, probably be a piece that goes out on the Anfield wrap when we win the league which will have been written prior to the moment where it happens uh, but I'll still do something on literally the game where it happens as well but my my thing is that never try and you know preempt that because you've got to capture that and my answer to that when I've been writing is how do you write a game write about a game that everybody's seen you write about what it felt like so you don't you can mention what happened, what happens important as because it acts as the catalyst for what it feels like. The events equal the emotions. They, they, they do things that bring about the emotions, sorry. And I think that's something which, so that's therefore how I choose to write about it. I think that, for instance, if you want to take a, an analytical piece, like, for instance, State of Play, which is an excellent book, you know, so what State of Play, I think, does really well technically is he's very, very clear on how he divides it up into his, into his chapters. His chapters sit as fully formed mini essays. It's one of the best books around sort of chapters I've ever read, to be quite honest with you. And almost all of them effect, effectively can be read as standalones where he takes an issue that he's been, you know, that he feels is at the core of the game that is a problem. And he explains his thinking, explains his rationale, brings in expert thought. It's a little formulaic in one sense, but it achieves its goal over and over and over again, right the way through. And I think that, committing to structure having an idea around it knowing what why you're making the decisions you're making having a framework for those decisions in advance of making them if you've got to write as i have to you know try to get 800 words 
and a show done within 90 minutes of the final whistle of any given Liverpool game. That's the aim. Um, and then, so you need to therefore know, sort of have a sense of why you'd make a certain decision quickly. I think, think that sort of stuff through. But ultimately, I think that you can't, you know, that big ideas aren't things to be scared of. They're just things to be, you know, handled occasionally with tongs. And that's something which I think where, you know, where I think things go wrong, including for me for that matter, is when you try to sort of bite off more than you can chew without having a structural plan around it. And I'm always very into structures. Structures have decisions. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. No, very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, Michael Calvin, wow, what a writer. Absolutely brilliant. And, uh, you know, I love, I love the stuff on the Anfield rap. I've got to say, uh, Ben uh, Johnson's uh, match ratings, player ratings always crack me up. And it's very hard, you know, to, when you're reading something to actually laugh out loud, but I, I, I with great regularity, I do with Ben Johnson's things. Uh, with the, it, it's superb. Uh, so, um, you know, the Anfield rap, you're there, you know, at the heart of it. Um, originally, I wrote this question, what's your favourite thing about it? But that's too easy a question. It's too difficult to answer because you, you surely can't have one favourite thing. But what's, what's like some of or one of the, you know, things you really love about your job? The, the best thing about the Anfield rap, the most important thing, the Anfield rap, theoretically, I should say, and I've said this before, you should sort of say the audience and our audience is great and all of them to pieces. Um, and we very much got the audience we wanted. Uh, and I think that, again, something that occasionally you miss is that you choose your own audience. You set your parameters, what you, you want from them. Um, and I think that <clears throat> that's something which you can because you just want as most most people and most things just want as big an audience as possible. And don't get me wrong, you know, I would look like the Anfield rap to have another hundred thousand subscribers. But what I want would want is for them those hundred thousand to feel like our people. Now our people isn't a political thing. It's just more the idea of simply being open minded, that there is more to life than football, but that this is about how much we enjoy this thing that we spend so much of our time and or money on. And you know, where where do we go with that? Um but I'd like I like our people. That said, uh, you know, I, so, so that should always be the thing that you say because they are the lifeblood of what we do and they pay for what we do, and that matters hugely. But the truth of the matter is that to me, you know, I love the contributors, and we have such a wide range of contributors. This includes some people I've never met. Uh, you know, there's people who phone in who support other clubs who just sort of got what we're about quite quickly. Like there's a guy who talked about Swansea with us every now and again called Gito Clewellen. And I think Gito's great. And I love chatting to him for 10, 15 minutes. And I've literally never met him. And a couple of times when Swansea were in the division, I'd say, come up, I'll buy you a pint, we'll have a chat. And it just never quite happened. But, you know, you look at the wide range of people, both internally in our team, who we work with every, every day. And then uh, the people who are uh, our contributors, you know, it's it's a pleasure to 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 be with them and to to be able to put them on show and they you know what I always say about our contributors Ben Johnson and his ratings is a really good example you know I, we're not asking anyone to not be themselves we're maybe occasionally asking asking them for them to be themselves plus ten percent and that's creating a platform to do that a circumstance to do that creating a room for that an an inclusive room which isn't you know isn't about um, isn't about where you're from or what you sound like or anything like that but some a warm space. I think matters and, and that's, you know, that is the best thing. The best thing is it's those people. And one of the things that's been, you know, it's a strange thing really, and that I am very sort of very social, uh, but I sort of, again, like sort of to be very social, but within, within settings um, and having, 
you know, gone through this this process of now, you know, the Anfield Raps I think it's its twelfth twelfth week of lockdown because we went early because one of the things we were conscious of was that we have a space with, which involves a lot of people speaking with their mouths close to things in an enclosed space. Uh, which 60 people come through on a weekly basis. So we knew we had a responsibility to, to go to, to lockdown early. But one of the things that I've really missed is is that sort of that seeing people, seeing them briefly in the office as they're going through to do a show that I might not even be on or seeing them, you know, later on for a drink or all of that sort of stuff. And that's, that is the best thing and has been the best thing about it. And, and it sort of just always will be, um, you know, on, on a personal level, it really will. And that's where, you know, there's a lot of friendships that people presume a lot of people to do with the Anfield rapper friends before it started. And I'd say nine times out of 10, that's not the case, uh, really, or certainly not as good a friends, set of friends as they've become one way or another. So it is that, that is the thing. Uh, it is, and I can say it as one thing. Excellent. Excellent. Like a, like a family and friends all at once, you mm. know, the best side of all, the best sides of all of them. Excellent. Um, and uh, but what are some of the difficulties that some people, you know, listeners might not realise? I mean, like so I, for example, I, there have been I've I've recorded an hour an hour and a half, and then forgot to press record. You know, realised at the end I forgot to press record. People might not realise the difficulties. Other side, there's loads. There's loads of things that have been difficult, and and you know they sh- they, they they should be glossed over in a sense because it's important that ultimately the people who receive the end product basically just get to receive the end product you know i think it's the, 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 the to use the metaphor of of a swan swimming well yeah i want to be the swan and i want people to see the swan in the way in which they see it i don't necessarily want people to see all the underneath you know there's a lot of different people to work with um in different ways a lot of people feel rightly by the way i hasten to add you know people feel quite protective of this whether both you know from the point of view of people who started it people who work for it now, uh, people who are shareholders or people who are contributors or indeed the audience, you know, people have got a real sense of it and what they want it to be. And I think that that's, that's something that's, it's a, it, like, it's, it's a completely va- valid and arguably correct response. But there are times obviously when you've got to, you've got to make a decision, you've got to pick a, pick, pick, pick a, pick a direction of travel and be aware that some people may not like that direction of travel. So, there isn't, you know, it, it isn't something which is, you know, when to talk about difficulties, it, it, you know, there are tough days and sort of building what had to be built in terms of a business framework around it to make it be able to, to survive and hopefully to an extent thrive and hopefully thrive again at some point soon is something which I think is, is tough. And, and it's a bit of a strange thing where, you know, it it's odd, it's odd to wake up one day and sort of be aware that, without this in any way shape or form sounding grandiose or arrogant because it shouldn't but to be aware that you're sort of from nowhere running a little bit of an institution Mm. and that was that that's that that's a strange thing and it uh, it brings with it another set of pressures that it's not just you know a thing that you're part of and one of the shareholders of and can set a certain direction but also there's a lot of people for whom the Anfield rap is is quite important it's quite important in a Liverpool civic sense in a way which it's really good to be but again that comes with it with a set of responsibilities um and being able to ensure that you 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 keep the rambunctiousness and you keep the you know, keep the honesty. Um, the honesty is the easy part, actually. It's a bit, uh, but you, you keep that sort of, that sense of mischief that it has to have to be what it is, but simultaneously not, you know, not want to undermine 
the institution or its its civic role is is it's it's a difficult path. Um, so there's the, there's a ton of difficulties without it being without it sounding like oh my god everything's hard. It's not. You know, they're, they're good. They're all mostly all good problems. It's mostly all a really good situation to have. Um, and it's you know it's an enormous amount of fun. There's, there's a Klopp quote that I know in a book that I read the other day that you know um, that that works something along the lines of it's quite good to be able to learn a job by doing everything and making mistakes where no one can see them. And there's 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 a slight element of that with the Anfield rap. You know, we, from nowhere we sort of we run a business that you know has 13 full time staff in Liverpool and and getting to do that isn't something that five years ago I thought I'd be doing. Uh, and yet here we are and sort of getting to there's no you know there's no textbook it's not like starting a paper mill and you can read about all the paper mills that have happened before <laughs> you and learn from that you know we've we've got to sort of try to work it out all the time and and that's a good thing uh but obviously it comes with it the fact that that's not always easy yeah no it's, it's a great answer and it's i don't think it's grandiose or arrogant to, to, to call it an institution i mean within the realm of football podcasts it really doesn't get much bigger than the alpha rap which is uh, which is marvelous but was there was there a particular moment where it went from well now we're just a few mates you know talking around a microphone once a week to oh shit you know i'm running this big <laughs> you know like but there's loads of that's loads of them and so for instance there was the first time we did a live show when we went to bray in 2013 mm-hmm. before then we, we got on the radio that was significant and, the, and that felt like things changed it but, but it very much changed in terms of the tone of what we did and how we went about it and you know there's a lot of people to thank for that and john uh, who you've had on led on that massively um the, the live show in, in 2013 in ireland when we turned when 500 people came to bray was was hugely significant later in 2013 we went to australia and a thousand people came to one of our live shows and that was bananas uh, mm. and brilliant in equal measure uh so there are you know the, the, there are those instances and then there's just the sort of the there's the day-to-day you know, just realization that you've got a number of paying customers who expect something and rightly so, by the way. Uh, and then from there, you know, people want to know what you think about X, Y, or Z. And that's something which is a little bit strange, but it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but again, with that, you've therefore got a, a slight level of responsibility because I often go out of my way to say, you know, what we do isn't journalism and I don't think it is journalism and I don't particularly want it to be journalism um you know and that's not that's not to in any way shape or form impugn the journalists that you know the journalists who cover liverpool liverpool couldn't be better served by its crop of current beat patch reporters uh and even those who are adjacent to them people like you know the, the frankly brilliant and hugely talented melissa reddy you know we couldn't be better served um across the board on that but that it's not what we do so i think that's a massive part of it is just sort of realizing that you've got you know you you've got that if you've got the scope to be able to do it then you've also got the responsibility to make sure you're doing it really really well and that's you know for instance last week i interviewed jürgen and i was sort of conscious that you know that it had to be done well you know you've got the better example in a sense really is when going back to when we last interviewed him last summer uh, in the United States, and um, you know, we got a message from from Liverpool's guy who, who looks after this sort of stuff, Matt. And it was um, we were going on stage that night in front of two and a half thousand people in in Boston, 
and it was like literally whilst we were backstage it got confirmed when it was and Matt said I want to be creative so in my head I'm about to go on stage in front of two and a half thousand people many of them didn't know who we were and with no real sense of exactly how we were going to do it and then I'm also trying to now think of what are we going to do with Jürgen and we came up with the idea of talk us through the 24 hours either side of essentially the final whistle in Madrid talk us through 24 hours in Madrid and it was strange no one else had ever done that supposedly Matt said you know there's loads of stuff that he hadn't heard as he was just sort of stood in the room but we turned up, we had to do a really good job, but we were wrecked from the night before. Um, we were then going to go on stage at something else later on that day. Uh, so we had that still to come. But in that moment, the responsibility is there because there's Liverpool supporters who'd love nothing more than to ask Jürgen Klopp questions. So we've got to get the right ones and we've got to put them over in the right way. And we've got to, you know, Jürgen will, Jürgen's the easy bit. Jürgen will be sound. Jürgen's brilliant at this. He's far better at it than I am. But how do we get Jürgen into an area where where it will be new and it will be fresh and that's the responsibility and it's a great responsibility but that's the responsibility and and that's you know I was really pleased with what we got other people seemed really pleased with what we got and that matters you know because what we want is for people who like what we do and are part of what we do people who both contribute and subscribe to come away listen to it and feel in a sense an element of pride in in what we get because it's sort of you know you 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 are speaking for yourself and you very rarely get to represent other people. But ironically, you know, certainly if I go on the BBC and they ask me what do Liverpool supporters think, I'm always very clear to say, well, I'm just one of them. Mm-hmm. I think in general people think this, but I want to be really clear. I think this, and I might not disagree. Actually, I might not agree, actually, I think this. But ironically, I actually think when you do Jürgen, there's actually a little bit more of a representative thing. When you speak to the players, there's a little bit more of a representative thing, not to the wider world, but to you, to that person at that time. Because, you know, footballers are mostly sound. Jürgen's absolutely sound. Would Jürgen, if time was infinite and it could be arranged, do a 20-minute chat with every Liverpool supporter? He probably would, and he'd probably think it was great. But at that moment, he doesn't get to speak to any other ones. It's just you. And so that's why there's a responsibility there. As I say, when it comes to standing in front of 30,000 people in Madrid and saying whatever I think, that's not the same pressure. That's completely different. It's just whatever I think. And it's a really strange sort of flip in what we normally see as representative sort of behavior. Normally, if you speak to a not large number of people, that's where you're meant to be representative. But it is when, like I always want the footy players, you know, when John stops them in a mix zone and has a laugh with them, I always think, I really think they think our, our fans are sound, you know, they're dead funny. That's what I want them to think. And I want them to think about Liverpool fans. I want the players to think that. Whereas really, Liverpool fans can speak for themselves. Most of the time, they've got lots of opportunities to do so loads of different ways to do it. But in those little mini instances there, I, I, I think that's really great. But that's where there's a responsibility. Oh, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, you mentioned your, your Jürgen Klopp interview from, from last week. I listened to it today. Really good on the Anfield Wrap. Do, if anyone's listening to this, um, you know, make sure you check out the Anfield Wrap. You know, subscribe if you can. I heartily recommend it. It's been brilliant in this lockdown. Honestly, I really enjoyed the, you know, Thank on you. this day things and all that. No, really. And, um, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Jürgen, so, I mean, Dave from Dave's LFC Chats, uh, lovely chap. I, I believe you've met him before, but uh, yeah. Yeah, good guy uh, he asked me to, to to you know ask you a bit more about that Jurgen Klopp interview from last week I mean what was it like I mean he seemed to be on on you know on grateful didn't he yeah he's the the Jurgen thing is of all the times we've interviewed and the thing I always say is I'm really surprised by like I basically I feel as though there's there's different routes that you could take and the first time before the first time we interviewed him I either thought he would be slightly standoffish 
or he'd be larger than life and there'd be hugs everywhere and it'd be guys and all of that sort of stuff. And it's neither. He's just really, um, I, I, he's not cool. And I think this is a Jürgen thing. Like, I think that people think Jürgen's cool and I don't think Jürgen's cool at all. And I'm sound with that, by the way, because I don't think I'm very cool. And I'm, I'm mildly suspicious at times of cool people. Like, he's, yeah, I think he's quite gawky. Like, when you see him in person, he often has more limbs than he knows what to do with. And, you know, but I, I, I like him all the more for that. And there isn't that sort of an area. He's just very much himself. And I think that's why he, you know, why he is as you know, as good and as strong a communicator as he, as he is, because, you know, both in terms of his professional life with footballers, uh, with what we can call the general media, and then with us, I just think you very much, you know, he's sufficiently secure, well-centred, that is, he's just going to be himself. And he's just going to say what he himself wants to say. And he's not even going to be hung up with previous things that he said or thought. So, you know, a really good example of this is, I was in a press conference uh, two years ago, I think it was, when someone tried to pull him up, in inverted commas. He'd said that uh, when he after United had bought Pogba and spent all the money on Pogba, he said, he, you know, I don't like football. If this is the way football's going to go, count me out. And then he spent all the money that he spent on Van Dyke and was spending more money. And someone said, and he said, I'll just ignore all the shit I say. And... The, you know, the, and if that being almost any other manager or something, and, and sometimes rival fans try to do it and go, oh, the hypocrisy. But Jürgen can just sort of carry it off because I think in the moment he takes himself the right level of seriously, like which is pretty seriously. And he knows he's a significant person, but he's able to simultaneously puncture that sort of version of himself. And, you know, is he can do that in a way which I think a lot of other people who communicate can't because there's constant authenticity. When he says that about United and Pogba, for instance, he's not trying to get a rise out of Manchester United, their then manager or Paul Pogba. He's asked a question and he's answered it in general, in a general sense. Whereas if that was other managers, they go, Oh, is that mind games? And Jürgen doesn't, he doesn't have, doesn't want to do mind games, not bothered, doesn't want any of that, any of that nonsense. He'll just, you ask him a question, he'll answer it honestly as he feels there and then. And I think he, because he evokes that to such a large number of people, he's able to do that through the camera. He's able to do that one-on-one. That therefore then it's perfectly fine for Jürgen to change his mind. It's perfectly fine for Jürgen to say something that he's later on going to go and contradict. And if you pull him up on it, he'll say, yeah, I was wrong when I said that. And then it's like, oh, right, so what's our next move? Nothing. And we've all got to get on. And I think that's because he is very, very true to himself. And that's it's nice to interview someone like that. But you know, I don't think those people are unique. And I think one of the things that... I don't think Jürgen has made Liverpool's players better people. But what I think Jürgen being at the club has done is he's created the room, the environment and the circumstance for those people to show that they are, you know, fully grown people that, you know, we get to see and get to have a sense of the the way in which Trent views himself within a community that we, you know, Andy Robertson, the same, Jordan Henderson, uh, Mo Salah, Sadio Mane, Virgil van Dijk. There's the, the Nealon picture this week, which is supposedly driven by van Dijk and, and, and Wijnaldum, that they wanted to do that. And, it becomes that you can just imagine there and then Jürgen, you know, Jürgen, Jordan Henderson say, yep, let's do it right now. Come on. Yep. We'll support you completely in this. And we support that. We support this wider cause. And I think that's because in the moment there is a, there's a direct sort of, we will, we will put over who we are. And I think that's something that's quite that. I think up till five years ago, and I think Jürgen is part of it, but I don't think he's the only thing. I think that's something that that has had always been quite rare in football. I think football's always been quite an opaque world. 
Whereas I think that more and more, and I don't think it is just Jürgen, look at all the work that Rashford's done since lockdown and the way in which he's told that story on his own terms, in his own way. I think that we're, we're, we're better around that now in footballers and football people as people. So I, you know, so Jürgen isn't unique or anything like that, but, you know, he, he's got unbelievable levels of intelligence. He's a great communicator. He's, he is genuinely, you know, in the moment when he's, he wouldn't be speaking to you if he didn't want to. That's the other thing I've always got from the interviews. Of, you know, whenever I've interviewed him, he's happy to be in this moment with you right now. And as soon as he's not happy to be in that moment with you right now, he just if, if he just suddenly decided he couldn't be bothered, he'd just say, can we just stop this? I don't want to do it now. And that I think that helps massively because I think when you do interviews with people connected to football, you often feel as though time's ticking on, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why we're always very careful when we interview Jürgen. To, you know, to, I don't want him to grow bored. Mm-hmm. So that one's 20 minutes because I'd quite like to get another one in a few weeks, that's 20 minutes, and maybe I will or maybe I won't. But what I don't want is for you to think, God, when that fella got me in the room, he was talking the ear off me for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. I want him to think it was a good 20, really enjoyed it, punchy. Um, and I want, him to, I want him to feel positively about it. Hopefully he does, maybe he doesn't, I don't know, I can't tell, but he certainly doesn't feel sufficiently negatively about the previous ones to have said, well, I don't want to do that one. He so seems, that's he seems yeah. to have enjoyed himself really I hope so. really a well, lot you know but uh yeah no and I'm, I'm i mean it's uh it's really good i like the anfield reps uh technique the interview technique i, I i've noticed you're really good at that and um you know yourself but also your colleagues as well in sort of asking a question and letting the other people speak you know in terms of interview technique for the anfield rap do you i mean do you have meetings about it to decide about it is it something that people have learned at, i don't know media school or something no, no. So I don't think I'm a very good interviewer. I like to talk too much. So um, I don't do that many, um, really. I do Jürgen because, of, you know, I probably won't do the next one if we, if we do get him again, but I, but I really like uh, interviewing Jürgen and I, f- I feel at least as though I can... I can do it quite well, but like uh, I think Gareth and Andy are really, really good interviewers. John's a good interviewer. Josh is a good interviewer. And I think get out the way is, is a good thing. I think there's, there's a couple of little things that like don't go down the usual pathways because you know like people often say why don't you ask him about transfers the reason why is because he doesn't want to talk about transfers so on Jürgen for me you know people often say did you find out anything about Timo Werner no because he's not what's he going to tell me I'll ask him about Timo Werner he doesn't want to talk <laughs> about that so don't you know but there's there's the usual pathways and also I the other thing and when you say that you know it's in a sense it's sort of easier for us because the Anfield Raps job isn't to find a news line and so when you see a lot of interviews normally, it's what's the news line going to be. For us, we don't need to worry about that. The very, the very fact of the interview is a reason why people will, will want to watch it and listen to it and see it. Is it and that, that makes it easier, in a sense, I think, to be more conversational and to, to also do little things like, you know, other journalists don't get the luxury of, you know, two of you going in to interview one person, knowing that you will have a level of rapport that then you share with the other person that, you know, if, if it's one and one and there's two people who don't know each other, then there's, you know, then it's fine. You know, it's not necessarily a big problem, but if you've got two people who are already quite friendly and then you introduce another one, then that person then finds it easier because, well, I'm just relaxed here. This is quite nice. Um, in the same way that, you know, one of the, I'd quite, there's a couple of Liverpool players who are actually quite like to interview as pairs, you know, and, and a lot of what the club's done really well, I think with its media in the last couple of years is, is done stuff where you get to see, not one footballer, but two, three, four of them together. And they they almost do the interview for you then because it's just them having a chat. And you're going to find out more about them and who they are and what they're about. And I think that that all helps and matters. But there's no, you know, there's more just the idea that we trust one another to to speak to 
whoever it is to find them interesting and engaging. And if someone wants to run something past you before, I'm like, do you think I should ask this? Do you think I shouldn't ask this? There'll be like an honest, an honest question about it. Like my, the tone of what we were looking to do with Jürgen in the most recent one. Um, you know, a lot of it was taken from notes that John, John pinged over to me just on a WhatsApp and said, I'd probably look for this and think about this. And then there's little things where I'm trying to, and the only other thing to do as well is that when you know, when someone said something a lot, take that answer away from them. So say, I know you normally say yada, 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 but you know, what I mean by this is, well, what about this? So they can't say yada, 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 because you said, well, I know you normally say that, so don't say that now. Let's, <laughs> let's move on. Or let's just accept that. That's gone. We're on the same page as you there. So, but, but this is more interesting. Whereas, again, I think that that's something which, that's the sort of thing that, again, is easy when there's two of you. Like someone can just do that bit for you. And then suddenly they're saying something else. But a lot of it's just, it's just conversational. And if anything, it's, it's because it's not structured. Um, you know, I, you don't see... I never really, I'd, like, I would not want to sit and interview Jürgen and have a list of questions that I've already written down because Jürgen's got his own agenda and he's got his own ideas. And basically Jürgen's driving this and I'm just in the back. Uh, so, you know, we'll end up where we end up. <laughs> Great. Excellent stuff. Marvellous. Um, I want to push on to talk about LFC, the Liverpool Football Club, our beloved Liverpool. Um, it's a hundred. It's the hundred twenty eighth birthday. So happy birthday to all of us. <laughs> um, today is the third of June. Uh, so third of June, eighteen ninety two. Someone on Twitter, brilliant tweet. He said, "What would have happened if only Everton could have paid the rent, exactly. or something like that?" I mean, imagine. Uh, um, but anyway. Um, 128 uh, years, we are lucky enough to be uh, around for about uh, 40 of them, you know, maybe yourself and myself. And, uh, um, you know, tell me one or two or three or of some of your favourite Liverpool games. If I, if I mention favourite Liverpool games, even if they're obvious, I don't care. What are the first uh, couple that spring to mind? Um, in terms of, you know, I'll... The first 20 minutes of the 5-1 against Arsenal in 2014 yes. were just some of the most ridiculous football that you'll see in your whole <laughs> life. Um, just spectacular stuff. To be really, really honest with you, like, can't even conceive of it. Um, under Klopp, I'll always love, like, I love flawed football teams. I obviously love the machine of marvellousness that we've got now that, you know, does brilliant things. But there's something in remembering the madness that underpins a lot of the game. And I'll always have a soft spot for the 5-4 against Norwich, which is an utterly meaningless game of football. It's very important. It's the 4-3 against Dortmund. It was a huge game. It had unbelievable import. But ultimately, the same season, the 5-4 against Norwich, really, if we'd have lost, would it have mattered? Absolutely not. We came eighth. You know, it doesn't have anything on it, but I love when you watch a game and when it doesn't feel as though it's got any significance. And then with five to go, you would stake organs on the result going your way you would give up kidneys and I think that's but that only tends to happen when you've got as I say flawed football teams I think flawed football teams make for make for more entertaining uh, football matches at times you don't want to watch them every week because they begin to drive you mad but every now and again you'll get something else than like that Norwich game which was just an absolute pearl of a football match and uh, you know and Liverpool were at times awful uh, but that's all right and obviously it helps when you win uh, that's that's hugely important. Um, in terms of the the you know the decade before, I think there's the stuff around the around the treble season. There's some matches there which will just always be perfect. The three two at Goodison, 
is a terrific game and something that just makes you unbelievably happy um, uh, to think about and to, to reflect upon and then, you know, to sort of move forward from that um, to uh, at times under under Benitez, the, the day we beat United 2-1 at Anfield will always, and the 2-0 against Chelsea that season, two, two home wins, you know, it was 0-0 against Chelsea, I think, as, as the clock ticked onto 89 uh, and then Torres gets that brace and, you know, that's their wins when you feel like you're on a journey towards that time the league title um, and it's, you know, it's edgy. There's a 1-0 um, Schmitter volley against Chelsea as well, which brings to mind. So, you know, there's there's mo- those moments which matter which matter a great deal. And then, you know, this season, I'll always be... I didn't get to many away games this season. And now, obviously, the ability to get to more is not going to be there. So I think I've only really got to about eight or nine away games this season. That's fine. Like, some people aren't lucky enough to get to any because of ticket stuff or personal life or money. So, you know, it's still a, a fair few, but I haven't been to, like, a ton of, of matches away from home. And I didn't go to any for a couple of months. Um, and I was always adamant I was going to Leicester on Boxing Day. Like, mm. like in a personal life sense, I am going to, let me be very clear, from the moment the fixtures came out, I am going to Leicester on Boxing Day. <laughs> there can be no, there can be no <laughs> confusion. I am going to Leicester on Boxing Day. Um, no, I will not be at that family gathering because I am going to Leicester on Boxing Day. Um I've n- never been more pleased in a decision in that. Good choice. You know. Yeah, it was, but it was, the, you were watching the champions and I think that that's something which, like the season before, to be fair, I felt the same way when I went to Wolves, so not this season, but last season, just before Christmas, Liverpool go to Wolves on about the 21st of December and I went and they win 2-0 in the driving rain. And it did feel then that you were watching the champions, but Manchester City come with the run. But that game against Leicester, when the win put us that many points clear, and then they went to Walsall and next night City and dropped points. But when the win, this was up against a side that was second or third at the time. I think they were still second. And the win put us, they got beat the previous week against City. And I think the win put us 12, 15 points clear. And you were just watching the champions. And that was, you know, and that's why for all the talk around this season and this season being lost in the sense of, you know, it being a real shame. Well, it's true that it is a shame that there's not going to be a moment that when we're all together, in that it would have been a shame if, for instance, we'd have won when we weren't playing. We'd have won it if it got confirmed when we weren't playing. But it is a shame. But the flip side of that is that you win football leagues when 3,000 of you are in the King Power, beating Leicester 4-0. And not, we could not be at that, you know, and that's when we would, and that that was the day when if there was any doubt or any sort of, you know, it just was good. They had all the excuse in the world, never mind not to win the game. Uh, but to you know to find it hard because they've been to Qatar and just come back, and instead they go to the second or third best team in the country and they demolish them, and it was it, it just was the day. And and I think that you know thirty years of not winning the title. I think that that you know when you ask me the question you've just asked me in twenty years time, I'll still. I'll go through another list and hopefully there'll be some more new ones. But I'll also say it was brilliant. Boxing today, the King Power in 2019. It was the best day. That's great. That's a great answer. Yeah, of course, that's uh, that match etched into so many of our minds and, uh, you know, sort of uh, with a with a permanent laser. Uh, absolutely beautiful memories. Beautiful memories. Um, this team, this amazing team, as, uh, as we all know, has been on, on this uh, mind-blowing journey. And, you know, you look at the records. I mean, we've had a long time to think about it. I still can't believe it. If I look at the stats and I look at the table and I look at all, all these different things, I found a new stat site. Very good. FBref.com. Uh, FBref.com. I recommend it. It's, it's got tons mm-hmm. of very detailed stats. But anyway, 
just a very simple ones. Liverpool at home, one fifteen, drawn naught, lost naught. That, that, I mean, I looked at that and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember just how freaking brilliant we are. <laughs> but my question is, okay, the average age is creeping up. It's something that we don't like to think about all the time, but the average age of this team is creeping up. And how many years uh, do we have left, do you think, of before other teams can catch us? Obviously, it depends on transfers and stuff, but no. what, how long can they keep going in this extraordinary way? I think there's a, few, there's a few facets to that. One is that, you know, listen, let's be absolutely clear about this. There's an excellent Manchester City side with an excellent manager, and there's you know there's a fighting chance that uh, they can come back really really strongly just next season. To be quite honest with you, they'll always have budget, um, and they've got you know to say they've got a really good manager and they've got a good bedrock of players. A few of those players are aging, and they've got a bit of a crisis at central defence. But there's no reason to think that you know if I said to you right now next season Manchester City get 93 points, you wouldn't go. That's wild talk. Mm-hmm. You'd say yeah yeah I can see that. Mm-hmm. So, and there's every chance that Liverpool next season don't get 93 points. So let's be quite clear about that. Like, you know, I expect this Liverpool side to have another couple of seasons in it where it's a plus 90 football team. I think they've got a couple of years where they can, you know, with no real change, feel as though they can get more than 90 points in a, in a given season. That 90, we've almost made 90 our par score. Like as I say, if we just got 90, you wouldn't go, well, that's crazy. There's no way we'd do that. Or nor would you say, oh, well, I thought we'd get 103. I think 90 remains, you know, it allows for some injuries, but the ball bounced in the wrong way. That said, I, I think the question's a really good one because I think that part of what Liverpool have got and have had recently is a lot of footballers who are aged between 26 and 30, 31. Um, and I think that's uh, their peak years for a football team. And I think if you actually look, Liverpool have got very few players between 21 and 24. There's Alexander-Arnold and Gomez, and there's no one else. Uh, Keita Minamino, 25. Um, and therefore, significance to the future of the football club. Um, possibly at times more so than, for instance, Keita's given credit for. You know, Keita remains, I think, a long-term project for Liverpool. And it's important Liverpool find a way to get the best out of him, not least because of this age range thing so I think it is something that the club needs to think about I think the current climate the circumstance around coronavirus might have damaged the plans a little bit like I think that Liverpool may well have gone into the transfer market for two or three players this summer who were between the ages of 21 and 25 wouldn't we seem in really good nick 18 to 21 you know there's three or four footballers you can make a case for in terms of getting them some decent time on the pitch them growing with the team uh, between Hover, Williams, and especially Jones and Elliot. You know, you can see a pathway for them as footballers, and then there's Brewster out on loan, all of whom to me look like they've got something, and there may even be one or two surprises elsewhere. So, you know, 18 to 21, Liverpool look healthy, but 18 to 21 is really difficult. It's a massive leap to suddenly the idea of giving, you know, if I'm, I would like Liverpool to find a way to get Harvey Elliott 10 league appearances next season if we play a 38-game season. I don't want him getting 25. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a difficult little journey. Whereas I think that what Liverpool would look to do is to add 21 to 24 year olds um, and then have them be ready to take the place of people as they begin to move on or shift positions or go about other things in their career. So I think it is something the club's got to engage with. But I just think that now, given the fact that it'll be a compressed transfer window, given the fact that no one's really got any sense of how the transfer market's going to operate, I think Liverpool may well maybe add one. 21 to 24 year old uh, in the next in the next transfer window, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if they only look to uh, if they then get one or two players between the ages of 18 and 21. And it also wouldn't surprise me that if a couple of more senior players move on, 
if we maybe get someone who you might be able to make a decent comparison with Ranyar Clavin as a signing, for instance. So for, hypothetically speaking, if Lovren chooses that he doesn't want to do another season at Liverpool and he wants to go and get regular first-team football somewhere else, it wouldn't surprise me that if Liverpool think, well, we've got Joe Gomez, we rate him really highly, we've got Joe Matter, we've got Virgil van Dijk. This isn't the summer where we try to buy the next Virgil van Dijk. This isn't the summer where we, you know, where we put Gomez under massive pressure. We stick with what we know, we get continuity, but we get someone in who we like the look of, who's the right character, the right attitude, the right personality between the age of 28 and 30, who we can get 18 months out of. And then in the meantime, we look to then backfill that position um, at, at a later date, and that's what I think they'll do. It's, it would it would make sense. It would make sense. Um, you know, of course, you know, rumours, they call it the rumour mill. I don't know if you even like it. I don't know, these these transfer, all, all of the nonsense you read or you could read, you have access to, I choose to block it out generally. But there are nonetheless lots of rumours um, of, uh, of uh, Sadio Mane, for example, just to choose one going away to Real Madrid. Um, or, you know, would you, oh, well, how easily would you accept if any of our front three leaves and then say Werner or Sancho get in to, to, to replace one of them? I, w- I would be now, given the climate. I always thought there was a fighting chance that Salah would go this summer. And I think, I'll, I think in the end I'll be proven wrong on that. But I've sort of, I think I've sort of, that's become clear to me for the last six to eight months anyway. I, th- I felt about 12 months ago Salah might well move on. In that, if you win the league, you win the Champions League. What else is there to do at Liverpool? There's the idea of going and becoming a global, you know, taking your global icon status and going to Real Madrid or Barcelona. One of the problems with that, though, is that there's now fewer guarantees than ever that going to Real Madrid or Barcelona will lead to a Champions League final ahead of Liverpool. So if you want to keep that renown that you've got, you know, Liverpool, we've only lost one two legged tie under Klopp, albeit the last one. Uh, but, you know, you can really make an argument. But also, I think now, I think that Liverpool's position will be, given the fact that we've got no sense of how all of this will operate, I think that none of those players or their agents will be able to get them out of Liverpool. And also, I think that there's part of them which may not want to go. If you've come on this journey, it's one thing to win a league, but to do it behind closed doors, to do it when you don't get the open-top bus parade, that's not the same. And I think that... You know, to do it as part of that that journey, the Jurgen Klopp line that they will build statues to you here, I think is something which is crystal clear. I think we underestimate our pull in that. You know, I think I you know, I think you can you can you can over egg this particular pudding at times, but I think that last season, the parade, what it meant, what it meant to the city and what it therefore then meant to those players, what they got to be part of, I think has has elicited the reaction we've seen from them this season about winning the league. But I think also they genuinely do get to feel like they are part of something hugely significant. They're unbelievably well paid and pretty much all of their football and ambitions can be met at this football club now. So I don't think any of them will go this summer. I'd gladly, you know, I think Liverpool should, as I say, if Liverpool just bought Timo Werner this summer, that'd make a ton of sense to me. Uh, but I wouldn't be letting any of the other three go. Maybe just maybe the following season, you'd consider it. You'd consider looking at one or two and well, one maybe and saying if, if Werner's if Werner's settled in and there's 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 a pathway for him to improve and prosper and become a, a really good Liverpool player, that's absolutely fine. Um but I think Liverpool have got to you know, I think they've got given the way in which the world is gonna work for the next twelve months or so, I think what you know as a football manager, I think Jurgen Klopp anyway is more conservative as a football manager than people think. 
But I think sticking with the players, the tried and tested, and what you know, certainly when from a Liverpool point of view, it's just got you 27 wins out of 29, is very, very appealing. If you, you know, what, what are you gambling on? What are you gambling for? And there's another factor here, which is a lot of those players have just all had a great big rest. It's, I, 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 I pray that you're right. I hope that you're right. And I'm lucky enough, I, I, I work sometimes with professional footballers here in France. And I've, I'm, I, I've been doing it for a few years. And mm-hmm. I, I find it fascinating to try to understand their motivations. And, you know, I mean, to say they live in a different world is, is too easy. Because in my opinion, everybody lives in a different world. We each have our own unique sort of, you know, take or grasp on reality but let's not get too deep into this we've only got a couple of minutes left um i just i just think that a player's happiness in their day-to-day life is the most important thing and something you know you can have an, an ambition virgil van dyck was interviewed in 2012 saying that his ambition was to join barcelona and that might still be the case but a player's happiness, if a player is settled with their family, uh, their friends, yeah. if, they, if, if they're happy, that is something that it's like anybody. If you're happy, you don't want to move. You know, I mean, if as long as they're all happy, I think, I think, I think you're entirely right. And another thing that might maybe play into this idea of should I go to Barcelona? Should I go to Real Madrid? Um, could be Felipe Coutinho, just the fact that he was he was a yep. teammate for most of them, and uh, you know you could see how uh, you know how you know not exactly gone pear shaped, but it's you know it hasn't worked out. It's not great. <laughs> it, it's not yes exactly. It's certainly yes. It's not circular. It's uh, it's off circular maybe. Uh, but um, uh, would you have him back, Coutinho? And um, no, not really. I I I never was as um. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certainly wrong, but I was never as much of a Coutinho fan as a lot of other people. I think he was capable of some magnificent stuff, but I felt he skewed the team a little bit. Uh, and I feel as though he, you know, I feel as though there's a lot in what this side does particularly well, which which involves there being almost remarkable levels of fitness that I just think that Coutinho himself could never get to. Um, and, you know, listen, don't get me wrong. I, I do think he's a really, really good player, but I don't, I think there's a minor problem in him. You know, I suspect that to get the best out of Coutinho, Coutinho possibly needs to be the best player. Um, and he wouldn't be Liverpool's now if he came back in. So I think that that's, I think all of that makes it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little sticky on it. I think that Coutinho very much almost needs to be, you know, needs to be may well need to be the best player. You've only got to look at the fact that you know he doesn't make it work. But I thought he would make it work at Barcelona, but he doesn't make it work at Barcelona when he plays for some fabulous footballers. Um, you know, and I think that that's interesting. He's not quite made it work at Bayern Munich playing with some fabulous footballers. He's done reasonably well at both of these clubs. Don't get me wrong, uh, but I wouldn't be you know desperate to have back. But also, I think there's something in you know. Listen, if you told me it was Coutinho or no one, then I'd say I'll have Coutinho, but if you say, well, it's, you know, there's, there's like part of this is give me a new player. Like it's interesting. Wouldn't it be a laugh to have a new player? You know, is it Coutinho or Jaden Sancho? Well, I love Jaden Sancho because I've never watched him properly. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and from a Jurgen Klopp point of view, I suspect Jurgen Klopp, I think, well, I've never worked with him. So let's see what he's like and let's see what he's like as a person. Does he fit him? And so I think, you know, I think you can, you can get hung up on 
certain players and feel like, you know, and, and by the way, there's another example of this in that, I'd, you know, if you ask me Coutinho or Raheem Sterling, the answer is Raheem Sterling all day, every day, no shadow really? of a doubt. Oh, yeah. you disagree on that one, but okay. I think he's a tremendous footballer. I think he's, think he's I, an unbelievable I footballer. think he's a wonderful footballer, apart from the fact that he can't kick the football. Uh, I think, he can't strike no, think, it. I think that's absolutely fine. I think he's shown that you don't need to worry about that bit. I think he's the cle- okay. one of the cleverest players I've ever seen, Sterling. I, I take your point, that. and I think, I, it's, I think it's valid, but I think he'd be, I think he'd be incredible for us. Um, but yeah, I'm very, you know, but if you say to me, you know, Coutinho, you know, you've got to spend 70 million on Coutinho. I'd rather we spent, you know, 70 million on Kai Havertz. Yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, yes, yeah, Kai Havertz, wow. What a guy. Um, we've, got to, we've got to wrap this up. Uh, okay. Thank you so, so much for talking. It's been an absolute joy. I just got one little question uh, left. Um, do you have any plans for celebrating number 19? Do you have a little bottle of Blue Nun in the fridge? Uh, I've got nothing. Nothing. I need to think about this in all seriousness. It's firstly, it, it feels like the date is obviously getting closer. But no, I think that in general, we all need to think about it. We need to engage with it, and we need to do something which you know involves respecting the the world as it is now and the circumstance we find ourselves in. And I'm sure that the vast majority of Liverpool supporters will do that. But you know, I think we've got to find our our own individual pathway. Maybe I need to um, invest in some. Um, obscene red pyro and stand on my front porch, uh, <laughs> but maybe that won't be allowed either. Uh, there'll be something, um, I think a general sense of just overwhelming pride in what the football club and football team have done across five years, maybe even seven years, is, is the, the move because that's what it should be about. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, I mean, what, uh, what, a, what a beautiful thing to look forward to after all of this darkness and, and uh, uncertainty. But uh, thank you so, so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure, honestly. And, uh, you know, I don't know. All the best. I know you're busy in the next the couple of days. So all the best to you. Uh, thank you very <laughs> Take much. Take care, Owen. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.